primary care knowledge boost, ovarian cancer. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we have a very special episode um, for you. We're speaking to the absolutely wonderful Dr. Charlotte Badescu, um, who is a GP, um, but also works um, and does a lot of work with a lot of um, charities related to ovarian cancer and um, cancer in young people. Yeah, she. it was fabulous to talk to her and we were so happy that she reached out to talk to us because it was a, a match made in heaven in terms of somebody who can speak so perfectly from a primary care perspective about ovarian cancer. Um, so we primarily cover information around diagnosing ovarian cancer. So um, we go through cases and they're sort of real real examples with some changes made of cases of ovarian cancer and learning opportunities that highlight some of the most important points about some of the symptoms and spotting it early and just how important that is. So yeah, it's very much focused on the symptoms of ovarian cancer and how to spot it early and what investigations to do when. Yes, exactly. Great summary, Sarah. Um, and uh, we took a lot away from um, from speaking to Charlotte. Um, we think it's a really good episode full of lots of really good tips um, that people can put into practice quite quickly. Um, so we really hope that you find that as well. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a bit about you? Yes, um, my name is Charlotte Badescu and I am a GP. I live in Liverpool and I work predominantly in Manchester. Um, And I was actually diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2021. So I've got quite a unique viewpoint of being on both the doctor and the patient side of things. Um, And following my diagnosis, um, I started fundraising and campaigning for a charity called Target Ovarian Cancer. And I'm now part of their primary care advisory board. So I work as a GP ambassador on a voluntary basis for them. And uh, in this role, I'm involved in healthcare professional education um, and I'm looking at new ways to improve earlier diagnosis for ovarian cancer and improve personalised care for those affected. And I also have a voluntary position as a network leader for Shine Cancer Support. And this is a charity that supports people in their 20s, 30s and 40s with any cancer diagnosis. And I've actually set up a Liverpool branch of the charity in my local area. Gosh, not busy enough. Incredibly (laughs) inspirational. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and agreeing to talk to us about this topic today because it is a really important topic and we just feel so lucky to be able to get your unique perspective. So um yeah, big thank you there. No problem. Um so if we start with um a nice big broad question, but can you give us an introduction (laughs) to the topic of ovarian cancer? How much of an issue is it in the UK? Yeah, sure. Um, So ovarian cancer, it's the sixth most common cancer in women in the UK. So around seven and a half thousand new cases each year in the country. Um, So if we think about an average GP surgery, about 10,000 patients, we'd have around three or four women um, affected by ovarian cancer any one time under our care. Um, And in the UK, it affects around one in 50 women. And that rises to one in 20 if you've got a first degree relative like your mother, sister or your daughter affected. Mm. And we have traditionally thought of ovarian cancer as as an older lady's disease. But actually in the UK, there are 900 deaths annually in women under the age of 50. So we're really looking to try and push to make the diagnosis earlier. That's what we're trying to focus on at the moment. Mm. Because if you look at stage one um, prognosis for ovarian cancer, 94% of ladies have a five-year survival. Whereas if we look at stage four, when the disease is widespread, that falls to 16%. And unfortunately, the majority of women are still being diagnosed at stage three and four. So you can see where that really 
needs to make a change there to try and make the diagnosis at an earlier point and what difference we can make as GPs. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it in terms of the the absolute importance. And it's something that we're always worried about missing um, and worried about investigating. So we thought coming at this from the sort of primary care point of view would focus on diagnosis and how to be as safe as we can with our patients to try and find it and rule it, um, and find it as early as possible or rule it out as soon as possible, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got, I think, about three cases. Um, case one, it's anonymised and it's kind of a bit of an amalgamation of things. Um, Yvonne, she's 56. Her last menstrual period was when she was 42. Um, so she's menopausal. Um, she presents to the GP um, in the summer in 2019 with a change in bowel habit and some abdominal pain. It's quite generalised. So initially with those symptoms, she was referred to the gastro team and they did a colonoscopy at the time, which was fine. So she was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, What's your initial impression of that case so far? Mm -hmm. So... Obviously, she's presented originally with abdominal pain, which is one of the cardinal symptoms of ovarian cancer, and also a change in bowel habit, which is another red flag for ovarian cancer. So from her initial presentation, I would, of course, want to be ruling out gastrointestinal problems. Um, but I would have looked to request a simultaneous CA125 at the time of her presentation, alongside the other blood tests that we would be doing, of course, like her full blood count, um, ESR, UNE, LFT, etc., that we would do for the GI referral. So we could do the CA125 at the same time. And I would be looking to follow her up after she's had the GI investigations to review the results of those and then make a plan going forward together. So we really shouldn't be making the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome in a woman over the age of 50 without first ruling out ovarian cancer. Yeah, really important message there, I think. Um, the But I think we worry about how reliable CA125 is because there's a lot um, out there, especially during training and things where we're told that, oh, we can't rely solely on it. And how good is that as a test? Yeah, I mean, CA125, if we think back to what it is, so it's an inflammatory marker um, produced by the mesothelial cells. So those are the cells that are lining the peritoneum and the endometrium. So any inflammation or irritation can cause it to rise. So it's not very specific for ovarian cancer. There are lots of other things that can cause it to rise. So even things like inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, endometriosis, um, those things can all cause um, a rise in CA125. But then if we look at ovarian cancer, around 80% of women with advanced disease will have a raised CA125. So there's still 20% of women with advanced ovarian cancer that's not going to be picked up on that CA125. And if we look at stage one, we're talking about trying to diagnose things at an early stage, then it's a 50-50. So half of women will have a raised CA125 and half won't. And then ovarian cancer, it's a very heterogeneous disease as well. There's lots of different types and some cell types will never raise the CA125, even at very advanced stages. So we can't be reassured by a normal or negative CA125, but it is the most helpful kind of initial test that we've got at the moment. So we should still be using it and doing it for women that have suggestive symptoms, but just cautiously (laughs) interpreting it and if it's normal we we still need to think about doing further investigations and further tests okay yeah thank you so it's not to be reassured by it but it's a nice tool in the toolbox to kind of 
help. Yeah, it's just one of the tools that we've got. Exactly. Yeah. And that, like you said, that's where the continuity side of things fits yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if, we, if we've done that CA125 and it comes back, the cutoff point is 35. So that the NICE guidelines say that we then should request an urgent ultrasound scan of the abdomen and a transvaginal scan of the pelvis. So it should be both at the same time. And we should inform the woman that's going to be an, an internal scan as well as an abdominal scan at that point. And then obviously, then from those results, that determines where we go next. If the woman's got a normal CA125, we still need to review her and think about whether her symptoms are very suggestive or if there is another cause for her symptoms and obviously go down that route. So normal CA125 doesn't mean that we shouldn't do an ultrasound scan, you see. And interestingly, in the SIGN guidance, the most recent guidance, they actually suggest doing CA125 and ultrasound scan of the pelvis and abdomen from the start. So it's quite different to NICE, you know, that they don't suggest waiting for the CA125 results. So that's that's quite an interesting development. You can see the thinking behind it. If you're maybe going to go ahead and request the ultrasound anyway, why have the, the woman wait for that? But mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. But if we go back to Yvonne um, then, so she came in 2019 yeah. um, and had that referral to gastro. She comes back in 2020 um, now and she's getting a dragging pelvic pain and some urinary frequency. Um, so she's examined and found to have a prolapse and referred routinely to gynecology for that. Um, she has an ultrasound scan t- undertaken as part of that assessment, um, which shows some possible fibroids, but also a large ovarian mass. Um, and her CA125 at that point is 2,300. Um, so she ends up having a high-grade serious ovarian cancer. Um, what do you think of the learning points from Yvonne's case? Yeah, I mean, there's so many missed opportunities here with Yvonne's case, you know, where we could have thought to do a CA125. So not just the initial time that she presented to her GP with the GI symptoms, you know, potentially um, gastroenterology team could have suggested it when she presented there. And then when she came back to the GP the second time with the pelvic pain and the urinary symptoms, those are two other cardinal symptoms of ovarian cancer, um, could have been requested then. And then, of course, when she was referred to gynecology and um, on the triage of the referral, you know, the symptoms could have been picked up then and, and things could have been triaged in a more urgent basis. So she's obviously had her CA125 done after she's had the ultrasound scan. And it's unfortunately shown that now she's she's got a much poorer prognosis um, from her point of view. So th- there's lots of learning points where we could have picked things up earlier. Um, I think bearing in the back of our mind that, if a woman is presenting with abdominal symptoms and we need to move away from thinking about ovarian cancer as solely a gynecological cancer, it's an abdominal cancer presenting with abdominal symptoms primarily. 80% of initial presentation of symptoms in women that are symptomatic with ovarian cancer are of abdominal nature, not of gynecological nature. So we really need to be thinking about this and not just thinking, okay, abdomen, it's either GI or it's urinary. It could be ovarian in nature as well. And I think Yvonne's case really highlights as well that um, urinary symptoms um, are another cardinal symptom of ovarian cancer. So if a woman comes and she's of a menopausal age, she's potentially got a prolapse, not necessarily thinking that the urinary symptoms are solely down to her age or down to a benign prolapse, but actually, could they be ovarian cancer? Um, another thing to mention is that if a woman is seeking our advice about what she's 
saying is recurrent urinary tract infections. So she's calling up maybe telephone consultation, asking for antibiotics for UTIs. We need to be making sure they definitely are UTIs that we're treating and sending off a urine culture. And, you know, first time, okay, maybe could be. But second, third, fourth time she's calling up, making sure we're sending off a urine for her and definitely culturing a bug there. Because if it's not, then symptoms of recurrent UTI that would fall into this urinary symptoms um, section of the cardinal symptom of ovarian cancer. That's really important in a woman over the age of 50 like Yvonne. Yeah. I was I was just reflecting on um, the bit that you said um, near the beginning of that answer about the kind of gastro pathways and things. Is there a move or or a thinking in gastroenterology when they see that sort of presentation, negative tests on their end to do things like the CA one two five or or prompt kind of a pathway down the the gynae route? Yeah, absolutely. On the two week wait lower GI guidelines now, it's recommended that we do a CA125 if a woman's over a certain age and we're referring her on a two-week wait basis. Um, But of course, not everyone meets the criteria necessarily for a two-week wait referral. So there isn't necessarily a um, a referral form that we're filling in that's going to jog our memory for that. So this is one of the things that, that I'm doing as part of the primary care advisory board for the, for the charity um, is that we're working along with systems like EMIS, System 1, um, Ardens and Gateway C to try and create templates to help GPs and people working in primary care. And um, so that they, they, they pop up if we put certain symptoms in to the patient's notes. Um, we're recording, for example, a change in bowel habit or abdominal pain in a woman of a certain age, then it's going to suggest to us to do a CA125 level. So that that will be helpful going forward. Um, you're absolutely right. It would be fantastic if gastroenterology and <laughs> colorectal surgery could consider these things as well. And, and we're definitely working um, alongside our colleagues as well to try to create those pathways. But it's a work in progress at the moment. That's brilliant to hear that there's stuff being done though. That's great. Yeah, those are really good, good, good initiatives, definitely. <laughs> um, and I think reflecting on the case as well, the, one of the changes that came in since this case was probably the fit tests to guide who gets a colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. So that actually might be a kind of another opportunity to go, oh, is this definitely a GI cause or yeah. could, should we be casting the net wider and thinking? Absolutely. We've got a, um, a red flags postcard resource um, that we've produced from the charity. Um, and one of the things it has on it is, are you requesting a fit test? do I say 125 you know and it's or are you requesting an endoscopy because obviously some GPs have direct access to endoscopy do I say 125 at the same time and that's OGD or colonoscopy because of course abdominal symptoms can be anywhere in the abdomen it doesn't necessarily have to be lower abdominal symptoms yeah oh great um just thinking generally now what are the risk factors for ovarian cancer yeah, so um, ovarian cancer, I know we've mentioned that it, it can affect younger women, but it is generally a disease of women of an older age, so 88% over the age of 45 in the UK. Um, and it's a disease of increased ovulations in a woman's life. So increased risk if a woman started her periods earlier or if a woman goes into the menopause later in life. Um, if they've never had biological children, if they've not breastfed, um, and then that also ties in with um, taking the combined contraceptive pill reduces your risk because obviously stopping you from ovulating. Genetics, around 20% of cases of ovarian cancer have got um, some genetic link. And the most common cause, as we know, is the BRCA. 
uh, gene that's affected. And then independent risk factors as well. So endometriosis, um, that's an independent risk factor for a, a specific type of ovarian cancer called endometrioid. And um, so that obviously should pass through our mind. If we've got a lady who's got a history of endometriosis, we may be thinking more along the lines of this. And then something else that's really important to mention and um, quite topical is about HRT as well. So in the NICE guidance for menopause and HRT, it says that we should be discussing with patients that there is a small increased risk of ovarian cancer if we're giving HRT. So it's incredibly small in comparison to other risks. So if you think about a woman taking either estrogen only or combined HRT for less than five years, and um, then it's around a one a one in 1,000 increased chance of developing ovarian cancer over that time. And just over one if you're taking the HRT for a longer period of time. But of course, if a woman's got a strong family history of ovarian cancer, then we may need to be more cautious with HRT prescription and discuss those risks with her as well. So something to bear in mind. Absolutely. So um, case number two. So we have 45-year-old Nargis. Um, she's come into us with new irregular bleeding and some bloating. Um, she's quite worried that she might be perimenopausal. So we examine her, we we check her abdomen and do a biomanual examination and examination of the cervix and everything looks fine. Um, we check her CA125 and it comes back as 42. Um, so it's a little bit raised. So that prompts us to do an ultrasound of her pelvis and that's absolutely fine. So there's no masses. What do you think? Where would you go from here? Yeah, so we can see, obviously, she's had the, the slightly raised CA125. So we've correctly followed the pathway and we've we've got the ultrasound scan and that, that's been normal. So she's on the younger side, but we still need to bear the possibility of ovarian cancer in the back of our mind. Um, she's got bloating, which is one of the four cardinal symptoms of ovarian cancer. And irregular bleeding, so changing bleeding patterns, and um, it's less common it's not one of the, the major symptoms but it is something that can be caused by ovarian cancer in rare cases so what i would suggest from here is reviewing nargus and seeing if there's any other reason that we can find as to why her ca125 may have been raised so we know that ca125 is much less helpful in women before they've gone through the menopause and um, so you know, it may well be that it was taken at the time, for example, of her period or at the time when she may have been ovulating. Both of those things can affect and push up the CA125. And um, the other thing is that we've already mentioned about endometriosis and pelvic inflammatory disease, for example, or any other inflammatory conditions. All of those could slightly raise it. So are there any of these that are affecting Nargus? Um, and if there aren't, and we're still very concerned about ovarian cancer, then we may want to repeat the level of CA125 in, say, six to eight weeks' time and make sure we book Nargis in for a review with us and give her strict safety net advice that if she develops any other symptoms in the meanwhile to come straight back to us before then. And then obviously on that repeated CA125 level, then we can see, is it falling? That's very reassuring. That that suggests that it probably was um, a transient inflammatory. And um, if it's rising, then it would definitely suggest that we need to do further investigations. And obviously that would be now in the hands of gynecology. So at that point, I would definitely suggest referring on a two-week wait basis to gynecology if it's rising. 
So that's exactly what we did with Nargis. So uh, no other cause was identified um, for the raised CA125. So we did repeat it in six weeks time um, and the repeat was seven day. Um, so because it was rising, we did refer her to gynecology. Um, they did a CT scan, which was negative, but they also repeated her CA125 again and it was going up to 96. So at that stage, they did a diagnostic laparoscopy and histology showed fallopian tube cancer. Um, so we just wanted to ask what, kind of learning you think comes from Nargis's case? Yeah, so we really need to be thinking about a woman's symptoms and not immediately putting them down to say being perimenopausal because a lot of women can have obviously irregular menses at this time and bloating can have other causes as well but it's something that should just raise the question in the back of our mind um, even in a woman of this age and you know, repeating the CA125 is a really helpful resource to do. And um, because really, if it's serially rising, then that really does suggest that there may be something going on in either the ovary or the fallopian tube. And certainly, scans can be absolutely completely clear in early fallopian tube or primary peritoneal cancer. And as we say, we're wanting to try to pick things up earlier so things are more easily treatable for women. So this is how we're going to be able to do it is if we're thinking outside of the box and, you know, suspecting this and doing the test early and then repeating it, like I say, and if that is necessary. And so, yes, a a serial rising CA125 level um, in the absence of anything on the scan um, is highly suggestive of a malignancy going on that's that's just outside of the ovary. Um, And it's quite interesting, really, because we're moving away now from thinking about ovarian cancer in the the traditional way that we've thought about it and because we know that for the most common type of ovarian cancer so the the two cases that we've had so far for Yvonne and Nargis they've both been high grade serous which is the most common cell type for ovarian cancer and we know now from recent research that the the lesion that it starts from is actually in the fallopian tube and that's where it progresses from so if we can catch it when it's really early, then we may be able to target treatment and women will have much better outcomes. So it's kind of like thinking about, for example, um, like a melanoma in situ before it progresses to an invasive melanoma, thinking about it then and treating it early. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so many learning points so far. Um, So we have case number three is you, essentially, (laughs) if that's okay. Um, Can you talk us through what happened with you? Sure, absolutely. Um, So, gosh, um, I'm now 33. So I was 31 back in 2021. And I saw my own GP because I had been having some symptoms that I'd put down to basically work and COVID related stress at the time. So I had developed some mild irritable bowel um, type symptoms. I'd also been amenorrheic. So I'd stopped my combined pill because we were trying for a baby. Um, but my periods hadn't returned back to normal, um, which again, I'd put down to probably stress and my body trying to regulate itself after the pill. Um, and I wondered if there might be an, an ovulation problem. And my primary concern was about getting pregnant. So I saw my GP at the time. Um, and she actually suggested doing some blood tests, which I went for. It wasn't CA125 at that point, And we were doing it more along the fertility side of things. And um, so she, when she'd maced her dial levels, they were in the thousands. So they're over 2000. And my LH and FSH levels were undetectable. So this was a picture that 
neither I or my GP had seen before. We were a little bit like, okay, what's going on here? We don't really um, understand what might be causing this. So my GP actually sought some advice and guidance from gynecology who suggested maybe just repeat the blood tests in three to six months time and see if they're settling. And my GP just obviously now she's told me that she just had a gut feeling that it didn't sit quite right with her and she wanted to investigate things further. So she actually sent me for an ultrasound scan of my pelvis at that point. And she did do a CA125 level um, on my repeat blood tests, which was normal. So she obviously went down the line of, okay, let's still go on and do the ultrasound scan. And immediately I was diagnosed with 16 centimetre malignancy that was filling basically my entire pelvis, um, looked to be originating from my right ovary. So obviously I was straight in under gynaecology after that. Um, and thankfully, thanks to my GP, um, I was able to have treatment, which hopefully so far is effective. So I had early treatment for ovarian cancer, which, you know, I'd be forever grateful to her for thinking outside of the box. And, and this is why I'm doing um, the charity work and raising awareness and education that I am doing, because I just want to spread the word. You know, if it wasn't for her, um, then I wouldn't be in the, the very privileged position that I am today. Yeah, definitely. You can see as well, whenever you chat through that, the points where another GP could have taken a different pathway and mm -hmm. how that outcome would have been completely different for you as a patient. It's really yeah. quite humbling to see it in that way. Um, thank you for sharing that. Sarah has got points maybe. Yeah, no, I, I have. A, I'm just in that reflective <laughs> yeah. moment. It's just this. Yeah, I didn't realise it was the estradiol um, yeah. as well, which was quite... Is so it, it turned out that I had um, a rare type. So my, my type was not the high-grade serous that we've spoken about, which is the most common type, which commonly does send your CA125 up. And my type was um, a rarer type, um, which is a hormone-sensitive type of ovarian cancer. So that's why my estradiol level was so high. So it just, you know, it's not necessarily going to be a test that is going to be suggested for um, women with symptoms. I'm not going to go and say do estradiol or you know, FSH, LH levels on, on these women. But if you maybe did get a picture like that back um, or you, you weren't sure, mm. um, then of course, ask for advice, consider doing a scan and just trust your gut at the end of the day, because that, that's what really made a difference here. Yeah, it's the suspicion, isn't it? It's the, yeah. no, I'm not happy. Mm. Yeah, such a such a good skill, yeah. That's yeah. amazing, yeah. <laughs> so um, through the, the cases that we've gone through there, we've covered a few different potential presentations. Um, we've mentioned about bloating, um, new bile symptoms, um, the prolapse um, symptoms, urinary symptoms, um, and the irregular bleeding. Are there any other symptoms that you think would be important to highlight or um, any other tips um, to pass on about being cautious and trying to pick up people early? Yeah, I think we all know about the four cardinal symptoms really of ovarian cancer. So um, if we go over those briefly, so um, discomfort anywhere in the pelvis or abdomen. So it doesn't just have to be in the area where you would think the ovaries would be. It could be even in your upper abdomen area. Then we've got abdominal swelling or bloating. Um, so women often describe this as their, their trousers have gone up a size or they seem to have um, gained weight just around their middle. 
Um, and then we've got reduced appetite um, or feeling fuller earlier than usual. And then urinary symptoms, like we've mentioned. And these four symptoms, they should be new for the woman um, within the past year usually and occur around, we say, 12 times per month or more. So that's roughly equates to around three times per week or more. Um, and they should be persistent. So if we think about, for example, differentiating IBS from ovarian cancer, because that's often something that we, we're in between those, those two diagnoses, as we've seen with the first case. And um, when we look at IBS, then we think going to open your bowels, that generally tends to relieve some of the symptoms. So the pain or bloating um, might get a little bit better after opening bowels. With ovarian cancer, it doesn't. And there may be mucus associated with the stool as well in IBS. And we shouldn't usually have that in ovarian cancer. And the symptoms should be more persistent with ovarian cancer. So it's not waxing and waning throughout the day, depending on what person's eaten, you know, whether they're sensitive to certain foods um, and the, the bloating really should be present when they're, when they're waking all the way up to when they go to sleep. Um, so that's how we try to differentiate between those two. Looking at other important symptoms. So as with any malignancy, extreme fatigue, that seems to be out of proportion to what the woman is doing. Um, weight loss, especially if it's weight loss associated with increase in abdominal girth, because that would again lead back to the bloating. And then another important thing we've mentioned about irregular bleeding and changes to bleeding patterns, but postmenopausal bleeding is something that's really important to mention. So of course, if we're looking at postmenopausal bleeding, most women are going to end up being referred on a two-week wait basis to gynecology for that to rule out endometrial cancer. But we should be checking through and making sure that they've had tests to rule out ovarian cancer as well, which not all of them might have done. So CA125 and ultrasound scan, really, um, I would be thinking about doing in any woman that's had postmenopausal bleeding. Yeah, those are really helpful tips, um, particularly that differentiation between IBS and ovarian cancer symptoms. Actually, that's mm. really useful to go over. Um, we've talked a lot and, and the focus of the episode was mainly about early diagnosis um, and about presentations of ovarian cancer. But are there any areas about the management of ovarian, can ovarian cancer that you'd like to highlight before we end? Sure. I think obviously we all know that the management largely sits with gynaecology from ovarian cancer point of view. But I do feel that one area, and, and talking from personal experience as well, that it's definitely overlooked is about the woman's quality of life going forward after she's had that diagnosis and during and after she's had the treatments. Um, and as we've learned now, you know, a significant proportion of women are not necessarily postmenopausal at the time of diagnosis. Um, so we know that the treatments may involve, um, for example, total hysterectomy, both ovaries removed, chemotherapy, hormone therapy, radiotherapy. So many women will be plunged immediately into a surgical menopause um, from the start of treatment. And that can be obviously very debilitating and very isolating for women because they feel like they should be having to cope with these symptoms of menopause because they're lucky to be alive from an ovarian cancer point of view. And even if they've had one ovary removed and one left in, and then they've gone on to have, for example, chemotherapy or hormone therapy treatment, um, they may enter into a chemical menopause following those treatments. And if they don't, they're absolutely at an increased risk of going into a biological menopause at a much earlier age because they've had those treatments. So it's something to bear in mind from a GP point of view, if a woman's coming 
um, and she seems younger than usual and she's had treatment like this in the past and she's coming with menopausal symptoms and really thinking about how we can support her um, in primary care. So is that about liaising with her oncology team, about whether hormone replacement therapy is appropriate for her, or if we've got access to a specialist menopause clinic, can we refer into there? So thinking early about these things, because it really will make a difference to help with these women's quality of life. Um, now, you mentioned a few charities that uh, you're involved with, and um, we'd like to hear a bit more about them. But generally, what, what kind of resources do you want to highlight for practitioners and patients? Mm. So through the Target Ovarian Cancer Charity, we have a brilliant um, set of resources for people working in primary care. Um, so you can access them via the website. So online, there's downloadable leaflets and videos there. We've got our own podcast episodes there. Um, there's also something called a GP network. So if you pop Target Ovarian Cancer GP network um, into Google, it will come up um, and you can pop your details into the form there. We promise not to spam you, but we'll send you lots of up-to-date information and, and resources and tools to help you know, guide your, your practice and try to make things easier for you in primary care about making early diagnosis of the disease. There's also a webinar available via 14fish, which I've recently done for free. So definitely have a look on there and get your CPD there. Other things for primary care uh, for nurses as well. Um, there are resources on there um, and we're working on resources at the moment for um, ACPs and for paramedics as well. Excellent. We'll link to all of that in the episode description as well so that everyone can get access to all those great bits of resources. And then for patients, oh, maybe yeah. if you wanted to hear about, um, yeah, so about signposting our patients um, to resources. So hopefully their um, CNSs will do this, but just something to bear in mind. And there's loads of support via the Target Ovarian Cancer website. There's a closed Facebook group for patients as well. And a really helpful resource is about this, the specialist nurse support line that we have. So these are three um, gynecology and um, ex-clinical nurse specialists that we have working for the charity. And they're available Monday to Friday on the phone lines. So if any patients or relatives have got questions, and that's at any point, um, it can be pre-diagnosis while patients are going through treatment or after they've had treatment. Um, and they're there really as support. They're extremely knowledgeable about treatment, side effects, clinical trials. So please guide your patients to, to that resource as well. Is that for all of the UK or England? Yeah, or yeah that's, that's for all of the yeah. UK. Yeah, so it's a really, really helpful, yeah. underused resource. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then if just one mention as well, if you do have any younger patients that have got um, a cancer diagnosis and of any cancer, not um, so it could be male or female um, in their 20s, 30s or 40s, then please uh, direct them to Shine Cancer Support to the uh, website, Facebook, Instagram. And we've got a podcast as well called Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show, um, which is a really, really, um, they're all great resources and they can link younger people in um, with others because uh, it can be such an isolating experience having a cancer diagnosis at a young age when you're still, you know, you, you're got a future ahead of you with work and family and relationships so lots of um quite unique challenges yeah. about having a diagnosis at this age and and that's where that charity really really helps as well brilliant um so just to sum up um for everyone then charlotte what um would you say are the learning points that you want the listeners to take away from our chat today 
I think we need to move away from thinking about ovarian cancer in, in the archaic terminology of silent killer, as it's often been known in medical textbooks of the past, um, and understand that it really does present um, at an early stage with significant symptoms. And we really need to be thinking about those when a woman does present with any of those symptoms and joining the dots between consultations. So if she's come two or three times over the last year or two, let's link those together and let's have a think um, and just bear it in the back of our mind. Um, definitely never diagnosing IBS or overactive bladder in a woman over the age of 50 without first ruling out ovarian cancer. And yeah, if you, ha if you have a woman and she's got unusual symptoms and you've got a gut feeling and it just doesn't seem right, then do get on and do those further tests and, and refer on if you're still unsure because we have such a unique position as GPs we know our patients and, and we shouldn't underestimate our power to truly be able to change a life and um, which is um, you know I'm so lucky that my GP did that for me so I just want to spread that word. That's amazing thank you so so much Charlotte. No problem. So Lisa, now it's just us. In fact, it's the next day after we recorded that episode with Charlotte, which was utterly amazing and has been very much in my mind since. Um, what are your learning points from the episode? I agree. I definitely have been thinking about it a lot since um, since yesterday. I just think that um, she's such an inspirational woman. Um, she, I can't believe the amount of work that she's been doing, um, all the things that she's managed to progress, uh, the platform that she's created. It's just really incredible. Um and I guess in terms of ovarian cancer, um, there, there's so much, so many things I wrote down. Um, I think yeah. I was struck by um, the number of women um, that would have it in their practice at any one time, um, considering mm. that I would say that it's maybe thought of as a slightly rarer cancer. It's not one of the big, big yeah. hitters. Um, and also the fact that um, if you can detect it at stage one there's actually a 95 percent chance of survival and um, yeah. when again i feel like we hear a lot about the fact that ovarian cancer is this this killer like she said the silent killer but actually if you can detect it early enough the survival rates are great um so i think yeah. i was quite surprised by that what about you we can come back to me again yeah definitely <laughs> yeah i think i think it was it was that um casting the net wider and thinking of it as an abdominal yes. cancer i think that was the big thing that shone through was yeah, you can get symptoms from anywhere in the abdomen. And yes, there are symptoms early. So actually, it's just kind of thinking about it and thinking, don't just rely on a CA125. And, you know, if that clinical suspicion is still there, which to have that clinical suspicion still there, you need to be seeing them. So yeah, again, that point about continuity as well. Um, and, and the scans and then interestingly where people haven't gone quite the way that you'd expect that rescan or that retest yeah. I thought, and then what she was saying about testing with the fit tests and uh, and thinking of it like there's just there's just, she was just so eloquent and just put such easily digestible points about how sort of practice changing tips that we can use so quickly for our for our practice and making sure that it's always in it's always in our mind and don't newly diagnose IBS no. or new urinary symptoms in women particularly over 50 um we, you know without having sort of thought about it and ruled it out first yeah I thought there's some really really good points exactly no 100% I agree I think it was just that point like, like you've said that there are symptoms that are detectable early on to be able to pick it up and do something about it it's just maybe not quite what we've always thought of 
um, or being taught. Um, and it is that reframing, like you said, that it's an abdominal cancer. And I just, yeah, I'm hoping that um, a lot of people that are listening can can take that away and, and hopefully um, we'll be able to have a few people um, across the UK and the world, hopefully, um, that get their ovarian cancer picked up earlier because that's the that's the dream, isn't yeah. it, really? Um, and also, actually, the, just talking about the early cancers, the fact that it starts in the fallopian tube, yeah. like the histology and the pathway, that was really fascinating. Yeah. I, I liked, yeah, the way she went through about what is say, CA125 and that it's from mesothelial inflammation mm. and that made it make sense. When you look at that list of potential causes, it's like these are really disparate conditions, but actually it makes sense the way she <laughs> explained it. So Exactly. <laughs> There's so many things I can write down. We could keep talking forever, but... Um, I think she probably, um, yeah, I think she did it justice herself. Yeah, um, yeah definitely, yeah. Um, really. She is, that you say, she's incredibly inspirational. I think I'm just so, so impressed with the way that she's doing things. And I'm so, so um, happy that we were able to provide a platform for such amazing learning that was just delivered perfectly so yeah thank you so much charlotte so yeah thank you so much for listening we hope you got loads out of it as i'm sure you did um if you want to leave us any feedback please get in touch uh, you can do so through the usual channels and they're all there on our episode description as well as all the references all the resources that charlotte talked about in in the episode till next time on primary care knowledge boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.